It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In the wake of the American presidential election, social media platforms are trying to filter the real news from the fake. They face perhaps the hardest week in their history. Are they up to the task? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist and also on today's show. In the data economy, does privacy equal power? In terms of democracy and equality, we are not being treated as equals. We are being treated on the basis of our data, and you and I are paying different prices for the same products. We are not being offered the same opportunities. And how to harness the sounds of the sea to power underwater devices. So it can sit on the seabed for an indefinite length of time, and it picks up power from its surroundings, so it can just carry on keeping going forever without ever needing to be recharged. But first, across America and the world, social media users have been compulsively refreshing their feeds for the latest updates on the American presidential election. Tech executives face tough days ahead as new policies to counter misinformation are put to the test. It is Wednesday morning, and already Twitter and Facebook have removed posts and suspended some accounts that falsely allege election fraud. In the early hours, President Trump tweeted that, quote, We are up big, and they are trying to steal the election. Twitter hid the tweet almost immediately. Facebook took a different tack. After about half an hour, it added a label to the post, explaining that mail-in ballots could take days to count. So platforms are certainly acting, but are they making the right choices? Social media, if you go back a few years, they wanted to be a sort of neutral platform on which people could publish whatever they liked. And and they saw themselves almost just as as the kind of pipes through which these messages were broadcast, if you like, a bit like phone companies. Tom Wainwright is The Economist media editor. But over the years, they've understandably come under increasing pressure to take things down or to label things, whether that's misinformation or hate speech or violent content or all that kind of stuff. And so they've been drifting more towards the role of something closer to publishers, where they have to take editorial decisions on what they are and aren't willing to allow on their platform. So how would you rate the work of the platforms over the last 36 hours? Did their election night game plans pan out? They've come under plenty of criticism in recent weeks. I think much of it perfectly justified for having policies which they applied in some cases rather inconsistently and in a slightly ad hoc way. But I think that they seem to learn from that. And last night, certainly the the two most talked about platforms, Facebook and Twitter, seemed to stick to their game plan. They had reasonably clear rules about what they would and wouldn't allow and what they would do if people broke those rules. And they more or less stuck to them. And, you know, you can agree or disagree with with 
how aggressive they were being. Some people would like to see them do more. Some people would like to see them do less. But the important thing, I think, was that last night they, for the most part, would have avoided accusations of treating people differently and breaking their own rules. I think they mostly stuck to the rules that they had set themselves in advance. And the rules that they put forward in advance, are they the right rules? Are they doing the right things? I think the question really is whether they are even the people who should be setting these rules. I mean, these are are private companies and by law, it's up to them what they have on their platform. But I think people are increasingly uncomfortable about the fact that these are decisions which are being taken by executives rather than by elected politicians. And again, they find themselves in this difficult sort of grey area where they have also become platforms for public speech. And I mean, Mark Zuckerberg himself, the head of Facebook, has described Facebook as being a bit like a town square. And so they're taking decisions which have quite a big impact on free speech, both in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Okay, so let's go there. Who should be setting the rules? Not all governments have the same ethos when it comes to free speech. So what is the role of government in this world? Well, it's really difficult because around the world, you've got plenty of examples of governments who would really love to have an excuse to crack down on what people can say online, which in many countries is the one place where they are free to talk. So the dilemma is, if it's not ideal to have tech companies setting these rules, and if it's not ideal to have governments doing it, then, you know, who should set them? Should there be any? And the companies are are sort of slowly reaching towards one possible answer, which is that you can have sort of non-governmental organisations perhaps taking a role in this. Facebook has set something up which is, uh, I mean, it's set up by Facebook, so it's not wholly independent, some people might say, because Facebook has appointed its members. But it has this thing called the Oversight Board, which takes its own decisions, reviewing whether Facebook has made the right calls on taking content down. This is, you know, maybe a sort of baby step towards a kind of halfway house, a way in which content can be regulated and the rules can be set and applied by a body which is neither the government nor the company itself. Is that going to be enough? It seems to me that we still are stuck with the quandary that that even if we have these outside groups trying to scrutinize the, the big platforms, people are still going to be unhappy with that. I think they will be, yeah. And there's been dilemmas this year, which I think have made people think twice about the nature of what should and shouldn't be allowed. I think the nature of misinformation is often a a very blurred concept. One person's misleading statement can be another person's true one. But with COVID-19, I think many people thought again about that when you had people saying online that people could cure themselves by doing X, Y or Z, which actually could make them very ill. And I think you see a sort of evolution in the thinking of people like Mark Zuckerberg himself, actually. I mean, a year ago, he gave a speech which was a pretty strong defence, really, of free speech with very few carve-outs. And now, a year on, we're seeing Facebook take a much more proactive role in taking down things like adverts for anti-vax campaigns. They've taken down groups that were promoting the QAnon conspiracy theory, which is the kind of thing that a year ago would have been hard to square with the things that Mark Zuckerberg was saying publicly. So I think people's attitudes towards the kinds of things that are and aren't acceptable to have online have changed quite a lot, the pandemic being one big reason and the social unrest that we've seen in the United States perhaps being another. And what's the scale that we're talking about in terms of the cleanup that the platforms are attempting? They've got a big problem. They're vast. 
It's huge, yeah. And the amount of content that is taken down has been rising in recent years. So to take an example on YouTube, in the last quarter, YouTube removed 11 million videos. In the second half of last year, Twitter took down 3 million tweets. TikTok took down 100 million clips. And they're employing armies of people to help with this. Facebook employs about 15,000 moderators to check on content. It's interesting, they still do rely to quite a large extent on humans um, because AI is getting better at all of this stuff. But AI can't do everything. It's, it's good on the whole at dealing with images. So images like child abuse images and um, nudity in general, which is banned on most of these platforms, tend to be taken down before they've even been reported. But when it comes to text-based violations, that's something that artificial intelligence really struggles with. And there have been some examples. Facebook took down a, a post in which someone had referred to Indian savages, which the AI identified understandably as hate speech, until a human moderator pointed out that it was actually a quote from the Declaration of Independence. So you do have these difficult cases where you need a human to kind of look over the shoulder of the AI and check that it's doing its job properly. So, Tom, you've painted a, a depressing picture, but I guess if there's any optimism, it is that between free speech and non-free speech, there's also limiting the virality of some of the posts. Do you think that that's a possible solution? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something that the companies are talking more about. A lot of them have got this slogan where they say freedom of speech is not the same thing as freedom of reach. In other words, instead of banning it or removing it altogether they can just make sure that it comes up less often in people's news feeds, for example. So it's still there if people want to search for it, but it might be less likely to be suggested to somebody who wasn't going looking for it. And a lot of the companies have introduced more in the way of what they call friction. On Twitter now, if you want to retweet something, Twitter prompts you to add your own comment, aimed at getting people to be less ready to just thoughtlessly spread stuff. The same is true on WhatsApp. They've limited the the extent to which you can forward messages to large numbers of groups. You know, Mark Zuckerberg says he doesn't want to be an arbiter of truth. And I think one way for him to limit his role of being such an arbiter is to just make it more difficult for people to make things go viral, whatever they are, um, make it harder for people to spread things without reading them and without thinking. That could be a sort of halfway house and one possible answer to this dilemma. That's really interesting. Tom Wainwright, thank you very much. Thank you. One way to tackle misinformation at the root could be to overhaul data privacy online. With the right laws in place, it would be more difficult for social media to use personal information to target content. If fake news doesn't reach a hospitable audience, it won't go viral. So how to control that data? People tend to think about privacy as something individual. Data belong to a specific person or entity. And this guides the way that privacy is normally protected under the law. Yet a novel approach to improve how data are protected could be to consider data as having a collective value. My personal data contains personal data about other people. So if I share my genetic data with others, I share genetic data about my siblings, my parents, my kids, and even distant kin. Carissa Valif is an associate professor at Oxford University's Institute for the Ethics of AI and the author of Privacy is Power. Privacy is also collective because we suffer the consequences together. So take the case of Cambridge Analytica. Only 270,000 people consented for Cambridge Analytica to collect their data. But that led to Cambridge Analytica having the data of 87 million people. And in turn, that led 
to that data being used to profile all of the citizenry in many countries. So in a way, all of those citizens were harmed by the bad data practices of a few people. Well, those other citizens were harmed because they were the recipients of an inference from the sample, not from the actual ground truth that their privacy per se was taken from them and was disclosed. That's true. But today, with predictive analytics, inferences have become more and more accurate. And even when they're not accurate, we are being treated on the basis of that information. Are you worried that because we're now in a digital setting and we've got advanced tools like AI, that these predictions, these inferences are just so much more accurate that something has changed? Yes, I think something has changed. Many of those inferences are extremely sensitive, such that we wouldn't make those inferences before. So, for instance, you might have an inference as to what your life expectancy is, your IQ level, your sexual orientation, your political tendencies, all in one. And that file that data brokers have on you is being sold to so many companies and governments and other institutions. Okay, so you come up with several solutions in your book. You want to ban the trade in personal data. That seems a bit extreme. It might sound extreme because we are talking about it from a position in which we're already used to that data economy being in place. But I think if you were to talk with someone in the 1950s and tell them, you know, this is what we're going to do to fund the Internet, they would say, that's crazy. What's crazy and extreme is to have a business model that depends on the mass and systematic violation of rights. We're not truly consenting to this treatment of our data. Even when we click consent, which often we don't, often our data gets sent before we click consent, that consent is not meaningful for a variety of reasons. What does it mean to consent when you don't even understand what it leads to? So do you want better consent or do you want to just ban it outright? I want to ban it outright because I think it's too burdensome to put consent on the shoulders of people. In the offline world, we don't have the burden of checking whether the food we buy in the supermarket is edible. So I don't argue for banning the use of personal data. I argue for banning the sale of personal data, because if it's profitable, then the mark against which everything is going to be measured is whether it's making money, and that's going to harm users. So as you know, companies like Facebook and Google don't sell our data. They sell access to who we are based on the data, but they keep the data themselves. So that would be perfectly legitimate. Yes, except I also argue that we should ban personalized content because it fractures the public sphere and it leads to a lot of abuse. Google and Facebook's data would be less valuable in the sense that, yes, ads could access us, but they couldn't access us on the basis of who we are. Let's think about some test cases if we were to ban targeted content. Netflix. Surely if I like rom-coms, I shouldn't be targeted with more rom-coms, but I should get a cornucopia of horror movies. Is that what you're suggesting? No, I think Netflix doesn't need to know whether you're gay, fat, or slim, woman or man, and so on and so forth. You could just search for rom-com and then they would come up. I think we could come up with small exceptions. So for instance, if it's not data based on who people are, it's not data based on where you're located or what kinds of political tendencies you have. Now, you come up with a solution calling for a fiduciary duty to be placed on the people who access the data. Tell me more about this. Fiduciary duties are duties that are implemented when there is a professional relationship of asymmetry in which the professional has a lot more power than the client or patient. So examples are doctors and patients, lawyers and clients, and financial advisors and clients. The interests of the client come first. And I think that's what we should do with data. 
Let me ask how you came to these ideas. I was researching the history of my family in Spain. I went with my mom to research in the archives, and I found out that my grandfather had almost married a different woman who was from the right wing. My grandfather was in the Republican side of the war, and that the war separated them. And he had never told us about this. I learned that he had been the youngest tenured professor in philosophy, and I didn't even know he had studied philosophy. I had studied philosophy, and I didn't even know this. And it made me wonder whether we had a right to know those things. And that same summer, Snowden came up with his revelations, and that impacted me in a really profound way. And being a philosopher, I turned to philosophy to look for answers, and I was very unsatisfied with what I found there. So I ended up writing my dissertation on the ethics and politics of privacy, and getting just increasingly alarmed as I read more and more about the data economy and thinking this is more dangerous than I had imagined, both for individuals, but also as societies, just in terms of national security. You've talked about these harms. What are the risks of the misuse of data? There are many kinds of risks. Some of them are individual, and they include things like being subjected to public humiliation, cyberbullying, being discriminated against by a possible employer or your insurance company, but also something like having your identity stolen. But there are also collective harms in terms of democracy and equality. We are not being treated as equals. We are being treated on the basis of our data. And you and I are paying different prices for the same products. We are not being offered the same opportunities. And there are also risks to life. So if you look at history, many more people have died indirectly as a result of privacy violations than, for instance, because of terrorism. There is a really interesting study comparing the Netherlands and France. In France, the census made a conscious decision not to collect certain data regarding religion for privacy reasons, whereas the Netherlands collected as much data as possible because a man called uh, Linz was a fan of statistics and he wanted to create a system that would follow people from cradle to grave. And the result was that during the Second World War in the Netherlands, the Nazis found about 73% of the Jewish population and killed them, whereas in France, they only found 25% of the Jewish population. And the difference is hundreds of thousands of lives. It's like the pandemic. We knew it was going to happen, and now it did. The kind of insecure internet that we have, and the internet is insecure to allow for data collection, is going to be a disaster sooner or later. Carissa, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ken. Coming up, powering devices under the water using sound. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Finally, communicating beneath the waves is no easy task. Radio waves don't travel well underwater, so you'll have to download Babbage before you go. And that's why ships use sonar, which are pulses of acoustic energy rather than radar. For sonar to work, acoustic modems are needed on the seabed to convert electrical signals into sound and vice versa. 
But those acoustic modems need power, and lying on the ocean floor, changing their batteries can prove problematic. The big breakthrough here is that what we have is a batteryless underwater communication and sensing device. David Hambling writes about science for The Economist. This is a device developed by Fadel Adib at MIT. Physically, it's a cylinder about five centimetres across. So it can sit on the seabed or anywhere else for an indefinite length of time, and it picks up power from its surroundings, so it can just carry on keeping going forever without ever needing to be recharged. What do you mean it picks up power from its surroundings? Where is the power on the seafloor? Normally, underwater, there is plenty of power around in the form of sound of one sort or another. And in some ways, you can actually use the sounds that you're interested in to power it. So, for example, one of the suggested applications is to have it as a tag on a marine mammal, like a a whale or a seal. And the noises made by that animal would then be used to power the device. Or if you're looking at things like sonar, for example, if you wanted to have it to detect ships or submarines going by, you would use the energy and the noise from them to actually power the device. And how does it do this? It's all about harvesting acoustic energy. That is simple enough. The technology to turn sound into electricity and electricity into sound is what drives the speakers in your phone, your sound system and everything else. The challenge is doing it efficiently enough and having something that will both emit sound very efficiently when you broadcast and which is very efficient at picking up sound and converting it into energy. The trick here is this technique called resonance. Okay, so tell me about resonance and how it works. Resonance, we all know from lots of familiar objects, like if you ring a bell that will ting at one particular frequency, you can shatter a wine glass with a single note if it's loud enough because the glass resonates at that. Or the one that they always like to quote in school is when you're pushing a swing. If you push it at exactly the right point as the person swings forward each time, you can get them to swing higher and higher each go. That is what causes the resonance effect so that the sound level gets larger and larger each time. But now piezoelectricity, in terms of harvesting energy from its environment, has been around for a while. So what is it that the researchers did that made it such a breakthrough? The problem is with any type of speaker or resonant object is that it normally only really likes one frequency. That's why in your sound system you have woofers to deal with the low notes and tweeters to do the high notes. There isn't one speaker that can do all of it. And that's why birds, for example, have resonant cavities in their throats. So they're very good at a very narrow range of notes. That's why little birds are loud, but they're always the same sort of high pitch. The challenge here was to have something that would be resonant, but across a whole wide range of frequencies. And they did this by devising a particular structure. It's basically two nested cylinders, and then they've got a polymer layer in between them. And by the design of that, they've managed to make something which can cover a whole wide range of frequencies. So what are the uses of this device? It's got all sorts of uses because underwater communication, as you say, is via acoustics. So you can have an underwater sensor, which is looking at something like the water temperature or salinity or looking for pollution or anything, and it can then beam back that information. And because it's batteryless, it can just sit there and do that indefinitely. Fish farming is one of the applications that the developers are interested in, because at the moment, aquaculture is one of the fastest growing means of food production. But there are all sorts of challenges in monitoring what's going on in a fish farm or other underwater facility. 
and having the opportunity to put low-cost sensors that don't need any wires, don't need battery changing, could make that an awful lot easier. Another thing that's difficult underwater is navigation because GPS signals don't get there. So the suggestion is that you could have a load of these batteryless devices which would be able to ping out a location signal in response to the acoustic background sound and that would give a very efficient way of navigating underwater and that's very interesting for people who are in the energy field so like offshore gas and oil and wind farms and other people who are doing work underwater and want to be able to position things precisely. This all sounds great but has it been tested? Does it work? The chief researcher, Fadel Adib, tested it by putting two devices across the Charles River, which is between Boston and Cambridge, right outside MIT. And they achieved a communication range of 60 metres, which shows what you can do with the most simple prototype. They are aiming to get that up much greater. The next round of tests, they're looking at doing kilometre-type ranges, and that then gives you a much more realistic range for communicating with remote devices. And of course, if you start networking them, you can cover very large areas because it just means you have one device every few hundred metres connecting with the next one, connecting with the next one, and then you're starting to talk about really big areas. <laughs> How interesting. I was actually married on a duck boat on the Charles River between Boston and Cambridge, so maybe one of the sounds that it picked up were the words, I do? Actually, sound above the water probably wouldn't get picked up. It's only things underwater, so you would have to get married in scuba gear for that one to work. David Hambling... Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read more on all of this by subscribing to The Economist. In this week's edition, you can find the latest analysis on the American presidential election, a study of e-commerce in the Amazon rainforest, and in the science section, the latest research on T-cell immunity to COVID-19. Get a special introductory rate for Babbage listeners by going to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. And while you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. To get in touch directly, our email address is radio at economist.com. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.